Welcome again to Gamble On, the weekly gambling podcast presented by usbets.com. I'm Eric Raskin, U.S. Bets Managing Editor and Media Director, and I'm joined by our senior analyst, Pulitzer Prize finalist, John Brennan. And I have a short and sweet message to start the show today. Please, in the name of all that is holy, someone give the Robert Kraft tape to William Barr to redact <laughs> the hell out of it before it makes its way onto the Internet. Please. <laughs> wow, yeah. Uh, Eric, I- I'm fully in favor of, well, uh, barring this video ever being shown <laughs> first amendment be damned and that's the first time i've ever said that um i don't want i don't even want attorneys court stenographers or especially bailiffs to suffer either uh, right if ever there's a case for a plea deal i think this is it but as for Barr and muller everyone already has access to twenty five thousand or so podcasts that will emphatically underscore their strongly held predispositions uh, we have more important things to talk about as listeners will soon discover we we do indeed although one one last word on on bar is that uh I, i'd like him to maybe be redact a few of the bets we've made on this show as long as it's redacted. <laughs> Support that as well. <laughs> okay. So thank you to everyone for joining us for episode number 36 of Gamble On. If you missed any of our previous 35 episodes, they're all available on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. Please click the subscribe button so you never miss another episode. And now I'll shut up so John can tell you who our interview guest is this week. Uh, yeah, Eric, this is a big one. Coming up a little later on the podcast, we'll be speaking to a professional sports gambler who just happens to be the reigning Jeopardy champion, James Holzhauer. James is, as of this recording, 10 games into a run that looks like it might last a very long time. He's already number two on the regular season Jeopardy money list, and he owns the four biggest wins money-wise in the history of the show. He's taken the game show world by storm, and this week he'll join us on Gamble On to talk about both his lucrative pursuits, sports betting, and Jeopardy. But first, it's been another busy news week in the world of gambling, so let's get to it. Here's your Gamble On News of the Week, an inside look at the biggest stories in the world of gambling. We start out this week in the great state of Pennsylvania, where, ladies and gentlemen, we now have a date for the launch of online gaming. State regulators announced at a hearing in Harrisburg on Wednesday that online casino and poker will officially launch on Monday, July 15th, a mere 20 months after such games were legalized in the state. But all snark aside, we know the date now. What we don't know yet is the date for online and mobile sports betting in PA, But all indications are that it will be much earlier than casino and poker, perhaps in the next three weeks or so. There are currently eight brick-and-mortar sportsbooks in Pennsylvania. Each company gets one online skin. It's not clear whose site will launch first. Meanwhile, 12 operators plan to offer online casino, and eight have applied for online poker licenses. John, care to make a guess on which mobile sportsbook will be the first to launch? And is there any chance the PGCB doesn't hold firm to that July 15th date. Uh, Well, this sounds like another futures bet, doesn't it? Um, (laughs) I look in particular at two names. Uh, One is FanDuel, which has a deal in place with Valley Forge. Uh, They and DraftKings got the jump on rivals in New Jersey last summer because they already had a clear legal status with the app people due to Daily Fantasy Sports, and the others did not. Um, Now, if that has been finally cleared up, uh, keep in mind that William Hill was the first to brick and mortar market in New Jersey with Monmouth Park and in Pennsylvania with Hollywood Casino. Mm-hmm. I mean, William Hill's deal with Monmouth Park for a sports book came six years before last year's Supreme Court ruling unlocked the Pandora's box of sports betting. So tech savvy listeners uh, may now 
I'll figure this out, uh, knowing more about the app world than I do. Um, as far as the July 15th date, um, my sense of it from talking to Pennsylvania people early in the year was they clearly were not going to be rushing to get the Super Bowl or even March Madness or really anything, which I can't blame regulators for doing. So I, I think that's a sort of a sober date, and I think it makes sense. The only thing would be if there's any more confusion about uh, – the Department of Justice and the Wire Act and some kind of adverse ruling, that sort of thing. Other than that, I think they're actually going to hit this one. Yeah, I tend to agree. They probably wouldn't have announced such a specific date if they weren't really intent on, on sticking to it. They might have just said, we're looking at mid-July if they if they weren't really determined to hit this. So I, I tend to agree that they're going to hold firm to this. Uh, as for which sports book. Uh, will be the first to launch, which mobile sportsbook will go up first. Yeah, FanDuel's a possibility for the reasons you said, but I'm kind of leaning toward it being either William Hill, uh, for the reasons you said, or maybe Sugar House, um, just because mm. they're also already established in, in New Jersey. The, the site is up and running, but it's also a big-name Pennsylvania casino. And then mm. I do wonder if maybe... Parks is going to be the one to get the jump here just as some sort of a, a make good from the gaming commission for uh, Parks' live sports book having to wait and be the fourth in the state to open. I don't know. Uh, it, it could be any one of those four, I guess, really. Um, but, you know, getting away from the sports betting side of things, I, I do want to talk a little bit about the online poker situation, um, mm -hmm. even though online poker isn't the biggest moneymaker among these various forms of online gaming. <laughs> It's in many ways the most intriguing rollout because all indications are that Pennsylvania sites won't have interstate player pool sharing, at least not initially, uh, all connecting to uh, that, that DOJ Wire Act uh, opinion that, that you mentioned. Pennsylvania is a large and populous enough state that the games will be OK. You know, this isn't Delaware, uh, but it's not going to move the needle for online poker overall in America the way anybody hoped it would if it's limited to just that Pennsylvania player pool. I'll definitely be playing on July 15th, uh, and I'm just worried uh, I'm going to be sitting around waiting for my three-person spin-and-goes to fill, uh, hoping that's not the case. Yeah, it's it's really kind of sad. I did a story two or three years ago on some New Jersey online poker players, and they were really looking at Pennsylvania. I mean, they'd love California. you got a three-hour time difference, and there's a zillion people. Yeah. That's a dream. But Pennsylvania was going to be enough. I mean, New Jersey's not big enough. Pennsylvania alone, like you say, is okay, but not great. Just Pennsylvania and New Jersey combined gets you some of the liquidity that uh, these guys are looking for. So it's sort of uh, a shame that uh, that hasn't worked out because especially now the Wire Act issues uh, clearly seem to prevent these compacts, although the compact continues with Delaware and Nevada and New Jersey and right. nobody's gotten arrested yet. So, But Pennsylvania is pretty cautious and I can't blame them. And so unless we clear this up, they're going to at least start and launch with uh, with you're going to be stuck in with your in-state uh, buddies. Yep. Seems that way. Like you said, at least at least to start, maybe it'll it'll change down the road. But for now, just me against my fellow Pennsylvanians at the poker table. <laughs> Our second story uh, this week, attentive listeners will recall that two episodes ago when John made his master's golf winner bet, I said something to the effect of, well, as long as your pick isn't Tiger Woods, I'm cool with it. Um, now, I stand by my belief that you'll never get a fair price on Tiger in a golf tournament because he's such a public pick. But that said, he was the right bet last week. He won the Masters to claim his 15th major and first in more than a decade. And the public did bet him and did quite well at the expense of the sports books. There were various special promotions at the New Jersey sites that centered around Tiger winning. But the big Tiger Masters betting story was out in Las Vegas. 
where a supposed first-time sports better named James Aducci bet $85,000 on Tiger at the William Hill Sportsbook at the SLS Las Vegas, resulting in a win of nearly $1.2 million. And noted sports business and sports gambling journalist Darren Rovell shared the details of Aducci's story, and they seemed hard to believe in the eyes of many readers. He was supposedly $25,000 in debt just a few months ago, He sold some Amazon stock to come up with the cash to make this bet. He indeed made the bet in cash. There was debate about whether Rovell's article glorified what sounded like a case of problem gambling, someone risking more money than he could really afford to lose on a long shot bet. There was also debate over whether USA Today needed to publish details of Aducci's domestic violence history, which lots of other journalists dug up, but didn't feel were relevant enough to report. There's a lot going on here, John. Feel free to comment on any or all of it, but I'll start with this. Where do you fall on whether Rovell should have approached his reporting differently in terms of the problem gambling aspect? Uh, well, Eric, uh, full disclosure, I've, I've known Darren for 15 years. Uh, we mm-hmm. both covered the sports business space until last year when we both jumped into U.S. legal gambling expansion. Um, this reminds me of ethical discussions I'd had in my 35 years at the Bergen Record newspaper. It comes down to each entity figuring out their own blueprint, really. Um, in our case, we were focused on whether there was hard evidence that he was not a first-time better, as he claimed, or if there was some fraud charges and that sort of thing that would make the entire story really suspect. Um, failing that, we didn't go ahead with an expose. Um, at the same time, we have a correspondent in Las Vegas, and we didn't cover this press conference on Monday either. Um, even the claim details that were out already seemed a little sketchy. And yeah, there's a risk of glorifying compulsive gambling. Uh, we just had a recovering compulsive gambler on the podcast last month. It was very you know, informative. And uh, that's part of the tale of this industry that we need to tell. And, and I think we need to be a little cognizant of, of what this sort of a story does for the general public or for people at risk. Um, but, you know, other outlets can and did make their own decisions. And from there, it's up to the public to decide. I think uh, really the more transparency all outlets can offer on this rationale, the better. So this is ours and that's theirs. And people can then make an informed decision. Yeah. Um, I, I look at the, the Rovell story and, and I don't, I don't know if there's much he could have done differently on the problem gambling front, uh, it, except to maybe work in a little editorializing about how this was a dangerously risky way to approach sports betting, you know, just a little something to balance out how fun and exciting it all, it all sounds. But it's tricky because it's not like he was really writing an opinion piece. Um, I'll quote what uh, Jamie Salzberg of the After Gambling blog, who, as you said, was on our podcast recently. I'll quote what he wrote on Twitter. He advised, quote, Report on gambling stories with the thought that your two best friends will read slash watch slash listen to it, one that loves to gamble and does so without harm, and one that is a problem gambler. So that's his approach to it. It's, it's a tough thing to, to write every story with those two audiences in mind, but um, I think in an ideal world, that, that is what you would try for. But I mean, I think the bigger criticism for Rovell might just be that he didn't seem to question the veracity of the subject's story enough. And and we'll see if the full story eventually comes out. But it doesn't feel like we have it yet. Like It doesn't feel like Aducci told it exactly how it was. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, I, I just was not that comfortable with it. And I was sort of glad that we... You know, normally I, I just want to cover everything, you know, go to every press yeah. conference and write everything and let people decide, you know. Um, but here it just... Um, it just it just seemed like it had a chance to backfire, so I don't I don't regret uh, our decision. Right. Um. As for the more general story of of Tiger winning and the betting surrounding it, um, this is 
good for the sports books in the long run. You know, they lose a little here to get people betting on Tiger at much shorter odds next time. Uh, but meanwhile, I- I'm really kicking myself. I was in New Jersey last Monday. I saw that BetStars had that special uh, offering of 100 to 1 odds. Uh, yeah, the max was only $10, but I tend not to bet much on long shot underdogs anyway. $10 probably would have been about the size of the bet I'd have wanted to make. So I thought about it. I knew those were amazing odds. I knew it was a smart bet. But I also am not a Tiger fan, and I didn't want to have to root for him. <laughs> and I talked myself into, well, he's not going to win anyway. Don't throw the 10 bucks away. And I cost myself $1,000. So so that sucks. Um, I, I guess this, among other reasons, is why I could never be a pro sports better, because I let rooting interests get in the way. Yeah, I mean, uh, clearly that was uh, an opportunity that um, a lot of the pros uh, in New Jersey – would take advantage of because like you said the you know the expected value and all that kind of thing is just uh it was too good i i just didn't i didn't think tiger would be good enough on the par fives that was the only reason i I definitely feared him as i mentioned but right i didn't i didn't pick him and i didn't think he could win because of the par five issue which he certainly solved on the weekend um so i i won as much money on him as you did <laughs> yeah and I, I think i saw that the that bet stars ended up paying out uh three hundred sixty thousand on that uh which means only 360 people took advantage of, of those hundred yeah. to one odds, which really uh, isn't that bad. I guess it could have been could have been worse for him. And they just got a little more publicity. There you go. All right. Our final story this week. Uh, in past months, we've often led the news segment with the New Jersey gambling revenue report. But the Pennsylvania news and the Tiger betting news were, were just playing bigger this time around. That said, the New Jersey March revenue is still plenty newsworthy as online casinos smashed their all-time single-month revenue record with $37.2 million. And sportsbooks had their best month yet with $31.6 million in revenue out of $372.4 million in handle. Big numbers were expected thanks to March Madness, but these numbers exceeded most expectations. And this is just my opinion, but the big sports betting numbers and online casino numbers are most likely related. Sports betting is, like poker, one of those things that gets people into the casino and they might win, and the casino's hope is that they'll then lose that money back at the slots and table games. And I think that's happening online. People deposit to make sports bets, then they dabble in online casino when they might never have been compelled to try online casino before sports betting came along. So that's my big takeaway from this month's news. What stories and numbers stood out to you, John? Yeah, Eric, I look at that 31.9 million revenue number. I mean, for the sports books, that's as big as January and February combined. I mean, it's a big mm-hmm. number. Uh, the books got killed in the Super Bowl. They lost more than $4 million in New Jersey, but uh, clearly they killed back in March Madness. <laughs> um, you know, that's a natural ebb and flow that I think works well overall. Um, it's not something you can direct, but it's going to happen. Um, it's fun when the public has a good month, uh, good publicity and all that kind of thing. People are in a good mood, but for taxpayers, it's better for the house to win as much as possible. Um, the state collected $3.7 million in sports betting tax in March. And Eric, we all know that those no-show patronage state jobs have to be paid out of somewhere. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, and I-, I wrote something on Wednesday following up on these numbers about about uh, FanDuel separating itself from DraftKings. This is now two months in a row that Meadowlands Online, which includes both FanDuel and PointsBet, uh, nearly doubled the revenue of Resorts Digital, which includes both DraftKings and BetStars. Seems to me like there's no looking back. It's no longer the big two. Uh, FanDuel is the clear leader in this market for a variety of reasons I covered in my story. Uh, and, and, you know, it's the one-two punch of FanDuel Online and the land-based book at the Meadowlands uh, being tops in the state. We'll get a sense of how much 
having the number one land-based book impacts the online rankings based on how well FanDuel does in Pennsylvania, where its land-based book at Valley Forge Casino is not in the absolute most optimal location and figures not to generate as much sports betting revenue as Sugar House or, or Parks. But you've certainly uh, spent a fair amount of time at that book in the Meadowlands. It's far and away number one in New Jersey, and uh, uh, FanDuel is, is really succeeding on both fronts land-based and online uh thanks in part to the location of that book yeah my my speculation is from from i've been there enough is i think a lot of new york-based sports bettors um are going to the Midlands racetrack because they like the atmosphere they like the amount of screens and all that kind of thing and then they place the bets online in the in the sports book and just outside of the sports book so um while it, it's technically recorded as just online. I think that the fact of the Meadowlands physical sports book being there and the, the atmosphere and all that uh, is contributing to that pulling away by FanDuel. Um, it, it, it's not proven in the gaming enforcement statistics, but, you know, anecdotally uh, from various sources, I, that's kind of what my sense is. Yep. All right. Enough of this uh, warm up act to this this undercard. Uh, what do you say we uh, get to the main event of this week's podcast? Let's do it. It's time to welcome a special guest from the world of gambling. Let's get to the Gamble On interview. Until a couple of weeks ago, many Americans didn't know that sports better could be a profession. And for those who did know, the image in their heads of what a professional sports better looked like was probably older and more cigar chomping than the reality. But James Holzhauer is changing that, quickly becoming America's most famous pro sports better by going on a winning streak on the game show Jeopardy. He's already smashed the record for single day cash winnings. He's number two all time in total winnings for a first time run. And he's starting to get some serious next Ken Jennings buzz and he joins us now on the podcast James welcome to Gamble On Hi thanks for having me Thanks so much for for being here. Uh, As I alluded to in your intro, uh, you're not what everyone pictures when they think professional gambler. Uh, You're 34 years old, you're clean cut, you're poised, you don't scream degenerate. Obviously this is not your chief motivation in going on Jeopardy, but how important to you is representing the sports betting and gambling community positively and changing people's opinions of, of what a professional sports better is? Well, the first thing I want to get out of the way, if you talk to the sports book managers here in Vegas, they're going to tell you I'm not clean cut. They got a well-paid makeup team at Jeopardy that makes sure uh, I look good on, on camera, but that that's not me. But more seriously, I hope I'm representing the industry well. You know, I've talked to a lot of people, introduced myself and my job, and outside Vegas, basically no one has ever heard of anyone with this job. They don't uh, know what it's like. You know, a lot of people will ask me follow-up questions about poker because they've heard there are pro poker players, but they've never heard of a pro sports better. I'm sure some of them think I run one of those 900 numbers that pick the sure winners, but you know, <laughs> if I can help the image of the industry at all, it makes me happy. Um, I know, you know, the only other pro gambler I can think of who's been on Jeopardy is Alex Jacob. He's kind of a right. legend on the show, did really great. He announced himself as a currency trader, so I, I think a lot of casual Jeopardy fans don't know that he ever played poker, but if you watch the way he plays, you know, he gambles big just like I do. He plays it exactly like a pro gambler should. I wonder if there's others of us who could clean up on the show with the same mentality. Yeah, you and Alex uh, both are, are proving that there is some crossover in uh, the the excelling at gambling and, and excelling on, uh, on trivia game shows. 
Yeah, James, one of the things I want to ask you is that I always found it difficult to explain to people, you know, once you cover a professional sports team for a living, as I used to do, uh, your fandom inevitably is going to go out the window. You know, I used to cover the New Jersey Nets, for example. I got to know and to like some of these players pretty well. I mean, given all the time we spent traveling the same cities around the country for six months and seeing them as often as my family for that stretch, you know. But I was always struck by my utter lack of empathy for them as we would talk after an absolutely gut-wrenching loss uh, for them, you know. And I wonder, as being a pro sports better change how you watch sports as well you know with even games you don't have money on and uh, do you have a team or a sport that kind of remains untarnished that you've kept out of the out of the options so i think um ever since i started gambling although you know it really is almost half a life ago now so i can barely remember what it used to be like but i watch games now and i even if i have no money on them i get upset when the coaches are not playing to maximize their chances of winning it's silly this is their exact job and they they don't do it um but I also have my teams, you know, I like the Cubs, uh, the Bears, the Knights, uh, but, you know, I'll always bet against my team if I feel like it's the right move, but, uh, you know, sometimes that comes back to bite me. Back in 2016, when the Cubs got off to that amazing start, their futures market prices on them were so inflated that I shorted them really heavily, and, you know, I, I hedged myself out of that position most of the way by the time October and November rolled around, but still, you know, it was like a historic moment to see them uh, finally win one, and it felt a little less good as a fan than it could have. Yeah, all right. Well, so your favorite team is the one you have the money on. I would say, though, I I never uh, handicap soccer because I think, you know, the the best pro sports bettors in the world are doing it. And I don't know anything about soccer that they don't. So the World Cup is always a really exciting thing for me that I can enjoy uh, just as a fan. I don't even know coaching strategy in soccer, so I can't get mad at the managers either. (laughs) I am still sore, though, about uh, Japan blowing that 2-0 lead last year. That's, uh, you know, my mom's side of the family comes from Japan. So with the U.S. out, they were who I was pulling for. Hmm. Uh, getting back to uh, to Jeopardy, uh, the the all-in move on the Daily Double is becoming one of your calling cards, and it speaks to both your willingness to gamble and your confidence that you can build your score back up if you happen to zero out. So two questions. Do you feel most Jeopardy contestants aren't playing optimal strategy with their Daily Double betting? And also, what does it feel like when you have 5000 or $10,000 built up and you risk it all and get a question that you don't know the answer to? Uh, so for the first question, you know, I worked out what I thought was the optimal strategy for me going in, and, and I'm playing as close to that as I can. But, you know, I don't know if that's the optimal strategy for everyone. They might uh, not feel confident with a certain category that the Daily Double is in, or maybe they can't focus on the trivia question when they have I'm going to do air quotes here, $10,000 at risk. And, you know, really, I think those are just kind of points on a scoreboard until you actually win the game and it goes to your bank account. But, uh, you know, they call them dollars on the show. And I think there's a real psychological barrier for some people. And if you don't think you can answer a question correctly because you're being distracted by that, you shouldn't be betting that much. Um, right. For the second part of the question, I, uh, there, there's already been a game that aired where I had 8,400. I lost it all on the first daily double, but I kept my composure. I built up, I think it was 7,200, bet it all on the next daily double because I knew that was the right move, and I came back and won the game. And I really feel like if you have faith in your analysis, that one single loss should never shake your confidence in yourself. And uh, James, playing off that daily double strategy and also the fact that you mentioned you get uh, frustrated when a coach doesn't uh, kind of make the right decision. Um, in what ways do you see casual sports bettors leave money on the table? And I don't know if that frustrates you, too, but I imagine you're not a big fan of parlays. And, you know, are there other betting mistakes that kind of make you cringe when uh, you, you see that uh, either the same better makes the same mistakes over and over or such a large pool of uh, players are always making the same mistakes? 
you know, I think there's a bit of a stigma attached to parlays. It doesn't really need to be there. There's nothing inherently wrong mathematically with betting a parlay, unless, of course, you're the type of person who always hedges the last leg. You know, if you're going to hedge the last leg of your 10-team parlay, just bet a nine-teamer instead. Um, but, you know, of course, most people who are betting at the sports book aren't winning players, and no system is ever going to overcome the house edge for them. I would say that much bigger mistakes are people who buy picks from touts or the type of people who will bet a team, and then if their team gets out to an early lead, they'll automatically try to middle in the in-game. You know, if you really believe that your side was the right one at the start of the game, just because they're up 10 nothing, you shouldn't have to change uh, sides in the middle. Um, so you, of course, aren't allowed to uh, go into detail about your, your future with Jeopardy as keeping this interview spoiler-free is part of the deal. Uh, you are, however, allowed to talk about the future of the sports betting industry. And I'm very curious for your thoughts on that. Where do you see the state of, of regulation in a year or two? And might we see you leave Las Vegas and, and move to another state anytime soon as more states offer sports betting options? You know, I'm not a legal expert, so I can't really say a prediction for the direction it's going. But I think they are trending the right way towards more states legalizing. And it makes me happy to see more states legalizing. But I love my home. And, you know, even if another state offers an opportunity for a quick buck, I don't think it would be enough to get me to relocate. Uh, you know, what? what is making me jealous, though, is seeing some of these crazy promotions in New Jersey sports books are running <laughs> yeah. get right now. It's just wild. And I know I know some people who have been able to take advantage of that and, you know, good for them. But Right. Well, uh, even uh, even if Vegas is your home, um, you did say the other day on the show that, that some of your winnings uh, might go toward traveling the world with your wife and staying in your, your 12 favorite cities for a month each. So <laughs> even if, even if not a, a permanent relocation, it sounds like uh, some temporary relocation is something that appeals. I'm curious, do you, do you know uh, what the 12 cities would be? We have kind of a, uh, a general framework, places we've been to already and liked uh, Kyoto, Barcelona, Rome, um, the island of Crete we really liked. These are all just kind of a, a general framework. But um, you know what the interesting thing about my job is? We, we keep having these conversations about uh, when we should take this trip. And I keep thinking, like, you know, if all the sports books 86 me, that would be a great excuse to go uh, <laughs> travel the world for a while. But they never tell you in advance when they're going to do that. So. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, James, I want to wrap up with a it's kind of a lighthearted question, but I just know a lot of listeners are, uh, to the podcast are thinking it. So I'm going to ask it. Um, I mentioned on last week's podcast uh, with Eric that, well, I have enough aptitude to uh, at least be able to head to an audition um, with an expired Mensa card in my wallet. No kidding. So but I'm certain I would be defeated by that damn buzzer. Uh, is there an art to that? And, and if so, does it have much, if anything, to do with your success? I'm not the best buzzer in the history of the show. That's definitely Ken Jennings. But uh it's a big component of success on the show for sure. I actually bought an ebook uh, by a former Jeopardy champion, Fritz Holtznagel, before I went on. He has some. He's done a lot of research with his own practice buzzer on what the best techniques are for how to buzz in the fastest and things like that. But I really think you know every interview has asked me, "Oh, how did your betting career prepare you for this job?" And I really think maybe the most important preparation was all those years I spent playing Guitar Hero and mastering <laughs> the uh, the rhythm, pressing button at the exact time. Oh yeah, I have no rhythm, and I think I'm a slow twitch guy, so uh, the book wouldn't even help me. But I'm I'm glad it worked for you. <laughs> well, John, it's not too late to uh, to start practicing on Guitar Hero. Maybe that's the case. Yeah, that's not my talent either. <laughs> 
Um, well, well, you, you mentioned uh, there, James, that uh, Ken Jennings is the best ever at the buzzer. Uh, but, uh, you know, like I said, when we introduced you, you're uh, perhaps beginning to close in uh, on him there. And I, I certainly think we all look forward to the possibility of you maybe squaring off against him in, in a tournament of champions or something like that at some point. And if you do, I, I plan to place uh, legal uh, pregame and in-game <laughs> bets on you to beat him if I can. I would be very interested to see uh, where the society goes if they're allowing betting on tape TV shows. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, well, New, New Jersey, of course, you could bet on the Oscars uh, this year, which is the only yeah. state to do it. And um, they're betting in the UK on Game of Thrones, which is amazing to me. I mean, that's crazy, but they do it. Yeah, I think I think for a Jeopardy tournament of champions or something <laughs> like that to be bet on, it would have to be live or or like a poker 30 minute delay or something like that. And I, I don't think they can be taped weeks in advance and allow legal betting. But. Right. We'll see. Well, thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast, James, and, and good luck uh, however much longer this uh, incredible run continues. All right. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, James. Two men. Two men. $10,000. Will they run it up or blow it all? It's time to check in on the Gamble On bankroll. It's a bit of a come down to talk about the details of our little $10,000 bankroll right after you finish talking to a guy who won $131,000 in less than a half an hour. Uh, but alas, uh, let's update our betting bankroll. It was not a good week for us. We had no winners, only losers. We dropped $100 on Justin Rose to win the Masters. Uh, not much of a sweat there. Um, we lost another $100 on Christina Hammer, uh, trying for the plus 300 upset over Claressa Shields. Shields won almost every round. And we also lost $25 with the long shot bet on the 10-round draw in that fight. None of our futures bets concluded since last week. But we have a lot of them to update in baseball, basketball, and hockey. Uh, first, baseball. It's very early. Let's make that clear. Uh, but we have three futures bets. Two are off to bad starts. One is in good shape. We have the Rockies over 83 and a half wins. They're currently 6-12. and 12. But if we want to see the glasses half full, hey, they were 3-12 and 12 a few days ago. <laughs> um, we have the Reds over 79 wins. They're 5-12. and 12. Uh, Glass half full there. They've only been outscored by one run, so their Pythagorean record is on a decent pace, at least. Um, I'm looking for futures bets on Pythagorean uh, uh, records. That would be good. <laughs> I, you know, obviously they don't offer that. I do wonder if somewhere they offer some kind of a bet on just runs scored over the course of a season. Uh, that would be sort of equivalent to Pythagorean record. But now, yeah, we're certainly not going to uh, win the bet based on Pythagorean record. They need to actually win some games. Um, in happier news, we have the Astros-Indians double division winner parlay, and both teams, after a sluggish first week or so, are now in first place. So that's good. Moving on to the NBA, my underdog Pacers series bet looks like it's headed for defeat. They're down 0-2 to Boston. We'll see what Indiana can do at home, but they're not looking good so far. You went safer with the Rockets to win their series against the Jazz, and that's in good shape. Houston is up 2-0 as the series moves to Utah. And speaking of Houston, uh, we got them at 15-1 to to win the NBA title about a month ago. They're now as low as plus 700. Uh, they look good. The Warriors are looking more vulnerable. DeMarcus Cousins is out. So, boy, that would be a nice bankroll hit for us at mm, plus 1,500. Yep. Um, and one last update in the ever-unpredictable NHL playoffs. 
We have the Bruins to beat the Maple Leafs. They're currently tied 2-2. So we will have a result on that bet on next week's podcast. For now, we had a loss of $225 for the week. We are up $546 overall with $1,310 on hold at futures bets. So that leaves us $9,236 to bet with this week. And you're up first, John. Uh, well, you know, I, I've made some awful picks in the past year for sure. Um, Justin Rose was one of 22 golfers in the 87 player Masters field to miss the cut. Um, that doesn't look too good, but right. uh, even looking back, I can defend that pick. Actually, he checked off all the boxes and uh, just didn't happen. That's uh, that's betting. Yep. But I'm uh, moving on. I'm getting back on the horse, uh, the PGA Tour horse for the RBC Classic in South Carolina, where instead of a green jacket, the winner gets a hideous plaid jacket. Um, <laughs> I call it hangover week with many of the top players skipping the event. Uh, uh, after the high of the Masters. Um, uh, Dustin Johnson is there due to a sponsorship arrangement, and he's from South Carolina, and he just sleepwalked his way to a tie for second in the Masters, so his presence makes it tough to make a win play on anyone else. Um, but the market is still focusing on Jim Furyk being really old. He's even older than Tiger, and not on him being healthy. That That's why he wasn't any good the last couple of years. Uh, it was health and not age. So he was runner-up last month against a spectacular field in the Players' Championship. So I'm happy to get him at 100 to win, 128, just to finish in the top 20. And I'll throw in a mere $20 too at plus 2,800 for Furyk to get his third career win there. Okay. Uh, Jim Furyk is the bet. Okay. My uh, underdog NBA playoff series bet isn't looking so hot as we discussed, uh, but uh, maybe I can do better with a favorite in an individual game. The Warriors are favored by eight and a half points tonight at the Clippers. And if ever a team has been motivated to not just win, but to build a big lead and keep a big lead, (laughs) it's Golden State coming off that blown 31-point lead in Game 2. I know they lost to Marcus Cousins for the rest of the playoffs. I'm not so sure that they aren't a better team without Cousins. Certainly, they were everyone's pick to win the title before the season started with or without Cousins coming back from injury. So anyway, focusing on this game, the Clippers are a good team. They can score a lot of points in a hurry. But this has all the makings of a statement game from the Warriors. Maybe this is the one, uh, and there's one every series, where Clay Thompson goes off and scores like 25 points in a quarter, and they just don't look back. So I'm betting $105. Uh, thank you, points bet, for the minus 105 juice. $105 to win 100 on the Warriors winning by nine points or more. Yeah, if, if the Warriors don't cover that one, I'm, we're all going to really start to wonder about them, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and I still can't believe you got beat on that Jordan Lyles bet a couple of weeks ago. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, bl- I blame it on the Reds, really. So I'm risking 157 to win 100 on the money line tonight for the Padres to beat those Reds in San Diego. Um, rookie phenom Chris Paddock starts with the Padres, and the Reds have the worst road OPS in baseball. Um, Padres are very protective of Paddock's arm due to in- innings limitations the last couple of years, but he can go six strong against this lineup, and both Pen has been good, and finally the Padres' offense can score. Um, the Reds' tenor row arc is just meh. I should know I paid eight for him in my rotisserie league, and I regret it. <laughs> Um, I like it. We, we've got a nice wide range of sports we're covering this week with our bets. we got golf, basketball, baseball. And to finish up, I'm going to go back to boxing. Uh, last week, I took a shot on a plus 300 underdog. This week, I'm taking a big favorite. On pay-per-view Saturday night, the best American boxer going today, the outstanding undefeated welterweight Terrence Crawford, meets Amir Khan of England. Crawford is a minus 2100 favorite to win. There's no value in that. But I think there's value and picking him to win by knockout, TKO, or disqualification. He's minus 250 there. And Amir Khan, as skilled as he is, 
His chin almost always lets him down. He's been knocked out three times. Even in victories over mediocre fighters, he often gets hurt or knocked down along the way. Crawford is on a five-fight knockout streak against some opponents with better chins than Khan. I thought about trying to target a range of rounds at plus money, you know, maybe focus on rounds five through eight for plus 230, I think it was. Instead, I'll go a little safer, not try to isolate a particular round or group of rounds. I'll just take Crawford by stoppage at minus 250, risking $250 to win 100. And that'll do it for this episode of Gamble On. Thanks to everybody out there for listening. And thanks again to our guest, James Holzhauer. That was a lot of fun having him on the show. You can find me on Twitter at Eric Raskin and John at Bergen Brennan and follow US Bets at US underscore bets. Go to usbets.com for all the latest news and analysis from the world of gambling and subscribe to this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes or the Apple Podcast app. And with that, John, please take us out. Well, Eric, this week's life lesson has to be about Jeopardy, right? Um, I'm old enough to remember having watched the original daytime version in the latter stages of the 1964 to 1975 run with host Art Fleming and announcer Don Pardo. Whatever happened to him? Uh, (laughs) uh, Fun fact. Yes, Merv Griffin is best known to your generation, uh, not for selling three million copies of his 1950 record, I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. True story. Uh, (laughs) But for Kramer's loving reproduction of his talk talk show set in a Seinfeld episode. I get it. But Merv is not... Uh, it's not well known, but he created two still running iconic game show classics, Jeopardy and Wheel of Fortune. Let's just say he has the entire cross section of humanity covered with those two shows. And with that, until next time, gamble on. Gamble on.